Hello, everybody. My name is Casey Lee, and this is me talking to people. Good morning, everybody. It is August 14th, 2019. Now, for those who are regular listeners, you know this doesn't come out exactly the time that I recorded, but I do like to put the date on the podcast just so to give you some context of what we're talking about. But hopefully this podcast is so good and so amazing that it's timeless and survives millions of years for all the listeners out there. Not that there aren't already a billion podcasts out there. All right, before I get started today, I just want to talk a little bit about the cell phone market in, um, I don't know if people even call them cell phones anymore, the mobile industry in Canada, there's something that's happening right now that I feel is really, really positive. It's like, you know, I feel like we're finally starting to see some serious competition in Canada. Now, for those listeners of us who are outside of Canada, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of under 5% of my listeners, um, if you don't know, Canada has some of the worst cell phone plans in the world. And in fact, there are multiple graphs online that show this. Um, but recently, the big three, uh, Rogers, Telus, and Bell, have started to introduce unlimited plans, uh, which already is an amazing thing. Uh, now, they're not the greatest thing because after like 10 gigs or 15 gigs or whatever your plan is, it drops down to a slow speed. But I'm starting to see this huge battle going on because Rogers introduced their plan and dropped their speed down to 0.2 megabits per second. And then Bell and Telus came in and they said, we're going to up it to 0.5. So that pushed Rogers to do their thing. And then Videotron comes in and they introduce big plans and all this stuff. And I see this constant battle of cell phone providers like keep changing their plans because of the competition. So I feel like it's alive, healthy and well, uh, the competition right now. And hopefully we will get some reasonable plans in Canada. Um, I myself moved to Videotron a year ago. Um, so Videotron's a Quebec company and they've recently kind of moved into Ontario through Ottawa and I've been very happy with what I've been getting, you know, kind of finally jumping off the big three. It's been really, really uh, positive. So anyways, check it out. If you guys don't know, uh, yeah, go go check out your cell phone plans because they may be better than what you're paying for right now. Um, so a little public service announcement there. All right. But that is not what we're here to talk about today. Today, we have a very, very exciting guest. I wonder if people ever question my genuineness, genuity, I don't know what the word, what's the noun for genuineness? When I say exciting guests, great guests, whatever, but I am genuinely excited uh, about all my guests that I have on this podcast. I mean, there's a reason I approach these people to be on the podcast. It's a select few people. Um, And so this person is a person who fits into my circle of people that I met through Elspark. So um, managing director of Elspark, Pat White, brought me into the Elspark world. And that's really where I started to network with a lot of people in the Ottawa space, um, doing things from, you know, sales training to presentation presentation training to all this different stuff. Um, And so what had happened was I... Uh, they, they, Elspark knew that I had a certain passion for presentations, um, you know, whether it become how you tell your story, how you orchestrate your uh, presentation, like a well-rehearsed play, everything to slide design. Um, I was very passionate about this and I was asked to work with my guest and I'll tell you what my first reaction was. I didn't know him. I didn't meet him, but just being asked to work with somebody else professionally on presentations, I was very worried Uh, And I'll tell you why. The reason I was very worried, and I did write an article about this, was that the corporate world in general, in my opinion, and I bet you his opinion as well, is very, very, uh, I don't know if backwards is the right word, but very, very 
in the wrong mindset about presentations, whether that be the effort they put in, whether that be their opinion of what makes a good presentation. And it's this vicious cycle of the people at the top passing down bad presentation practices down to the bottom and it just happens over and over again. And so my worry was I was going to be put with this guy to work with and he was going to have these bad practices in his head. And I was really worried. But then we met and we started working together and I realized, no, this guy gets it. This guy is one of the few in the minority of people who knows what makes a good presentation. And this is something I definitely really want to talk about and as to why the corporate world is in the state that it's in. So I was very lucky that he did that. We formed a great relationship. We were teaching basically the same principles, which is great. He has a lot more training than I do. I have I have a lot of informal training on this uh, in this area. Um, today, he is an executive presentation training, uh, training uh, coach. Uh, and he runs a firm called Save It Like Sully with a lot of clients of all types. I was going to put the clients in this podcast, but I didn't know if there's some NDA or whatever. So I'll let him tell me his clients. Um, but I'd love to introduce the uh, CEO or managing director of Save It Like Sully, Anil Delari. Nice. Thank How you, you Casey. I'm looking forward to, uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while, man. I'm a, I'm a fan of the podcast. I'm a fan of podcasts in general. I listen to a few uh, they're really hot these days. Yeah, it makes yeah. Makes sense that you're into it. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. Well, what's interesting is for those who don't know, because we hadn't, we weren't recording uh, in the beginning. Is Anil apparently has prepared uh, some stuff for me today. Uh, he he might be flipping the podcast on its head today. We'll see how it goes. Um, but you know, I'm I'm very excited because you do you are in a field that I, I do think again is underserved or or is a tough battle in the corporate world. Um, so, I mean, how do you, let, let's, let's start with, how would you describe what you do? Uh, you know, I, I am a professional presentation trainer and coach. That's the very boring kind of title. Uh, I help people communicate better. Okay. And in environments where it's not ideal. You know, you, Casey, standing in front of a group of 20 people or 200 people or 2,000 people, 2,000 people staring at you, uh, listening to every single word you're saying, that's not a comfortable environment. That's not a natural environment. That's not one that human beings tend to like. So it makes sense that, you know, you're not putting up your hand every Monday morning at work to say, I want to do that. But it's something that a lot of us are thrust into as part of our job. This is part of your job description. You show up on every day, every week, and we ask you to do this. You have to do it. And people tend to suck at doing it. Right. That's the, that's the thing uh, for a variety of reasons. But in general, very few, well, I'll ask you, you know, do you uh, look forward to going into a client or going into a meeting saying, I can't wait to listen to this gal's presentation right. or this guy's presentation is going to be awesome today. No, the, the bar is pretty low. Totally. Like, Oh crap. Another presentation. Okay. Well, let's see how this goes. And then, you know, that's how low the bar is. Yeah. The mindset is definitely, um, you know, and, and, and it's probably worse for, again, people like us who are very passionate about presentations. Mm. Like it's like, it's already, the bar is already low. And we are going in with the mindset that, oh, no, this, is, this definitely is not going to be good. Well, and, right? and let me amplify it even further, right? Let me, let me increase the discomfort even further. Uh, now I'm going to tell you that, okay, you're going to get in front of these 20 or 200 or 2,000 people. And, uh, oh, by the way, your credibility, personal and professional credibility, 
is absolutely at stake for this next 10 minutes that you'll be speaking. Yeah, yeah. 10 minutes, your personal and professional credibility. So how do you feel now? Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I definitely want to get into a lot of the reasons why, again, it's in the state that it's in. Um, but I want to I want to rewind back a little bit and, and talk about the Anil that I didn't know. <laughs> so, where, I mean, I, I found out yesterday that you went to Ottawa U. Uh, where where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Ottawa? Or? I was born and raised in Ottawa. Believe okay. it. Growing up in Ottawa, never thought I would stay. Right. Never thought I would stay. So um, the thought was I would go to university and then get a job somewhere and we'll see where the world takes me. Uh, early on, uh, after getting a business education, I, I uh, was working for one of the big banks. Uh after a while of doing that, knew I couldn't be a banker for the rest of my life. Just wasn't me. Went and got a technical education post-grad and uh, got hired by Cognos. Okay. Uh, and Cognos is where I grew up. Cognos taught me about technology. I'm a technology guy. Yeah. And a lot of people are surprised by that or don't know that. Uh, like hardcore technology, like I'm talking behind a computer screen, pounding out weird code right. kind of uh, tech guy. So... Uh, within Cognos, Cognos was so good to me with respect to giving me various opportunities. So after... Was this on uh, Riverside? That you it were? was, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I worked right around the corner from them. Yeah. So my early days in uh, the technical group was actually out of an office on Origa or okay. Antares. Yeah, I worked, on, I worked on Antares, actually. There you go. <laughs> so a lot of people didn't know Cognos offices were, were back there. Uh, and then after doing that for a couple of years, I was like, I don't know if I could code for the rest of my life. I don't know, but I had a business education. So is there an opportunity for me to combine the technical and the business part? And lo and behold, a product marketing job was presented to me. And I thought, this is great. I, I love marketing. You mean, so like presented to you, was it that you were showing like prowess in certain areas and they said, we have a product marketing job for you? Or? I, I was looking uh, combined with people who knew that I was looking, yeah. uh, and it just came to be. Uh, had an interview, things went great, got the job. That was really enlightening. I loved product marketing. I loved that aspect of the business. Got a lot of exposure throughout the company. Uh, allowed me to travel the world a little bit. Uh, and so uh, that's where I thought, you know, this may not be something where I need to go to California in order to fulfill what I want to be fulfilled on. Right, right, right. Cognos may be doing it for me right here and allowing me to travel the world on, on their dollar as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was really cool. And then I have always had a passion for the equity markets. So I loved trading stocks, still do love trading stocks. Just a personal passion. Cool. Uh, Cognos was in a weird spot at that time. It, it was... Uh, it was one of the, if not the most well-followed tech stocks on the market. We were trade on the NASDAQ, COGN, and we had at one point upwards of 50 sell-side analysts covering the company. So as part, a member of product marketing, I was giving product demos on a re- very regular basis to analysts on Wall Street and Bay Street. Oh, crazy. And I loved the discussions. Uh, the questions they would ask about products, I would ask them uh, certain questions about the markets, and I uh, loved it. And, and was this like this is a part of the world I don't understand super well? So, I mean, was that with the intention that they would then uh, view Cognos as a good stock to invest in? Absolutely. Right. So, products is what we sell. 
um, what we sell drives revenue. Revenue drives the success of the company from a stock perspective. Right, right, right. And profitability. So uh, in doing this, um, you know, I, I know, well, is there an opportunity to do something career-wise around the equity markets? Take my experience and, and move in that direction. So then I uh, was approached by a member of the uh, investor relations team. So, you know, you do a pretty good job of this. You seem to have a passion around the equity markets. Want to do it on a regular basis? Why don't you join our team? So I became a, a senior manager within the investor relations group, which is a very, very small team, and got exposure to um, some of the executive management at, at Cognos. A lot of fun to watch, learned a ton. Uh, this was around the early 2000s, so it was a very interesting time from a, a stock market perspective yeah, yeah. And, and an employment perspective in general. Things were booming in tech and then busting in tech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I got approached about the idea of going to another company and not just being in IR or investor relations, but heading up investor relations for a company that actually was doing an IPO. And that company was March Networks. Oh, crazy. So that was entering the whole Terry Matthews land and, yeah. and, and that whole environment, small, beginning so they, they company. So they weren't public until mid-2000s? Mid-2000s, yeah. Oh, crazy. I mean, it was 2005 they went public. I mean, how, how long have they been around for, though? Like, since... Since well before that. The yeah. long history of the company. Is, the company is still around, right? It's, right. it's no longer a publicly traded company. It went okay. private. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but long, interesting... Uh, history with that company. Right, right. So I went and joined them as their head of investor relations. Uh, and things were booming at the time. Uh, and, you know, the stock skyrocketed and, and analyst coverage was doing well. And Were you, like, at that point, I mean, how, how long had you been doing investor relations at Cognos before that happened? Not long. So, you know, a couple of years. Right. And so, formally, I mean. Formally. Formally a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. But remember, before that, I was You're doing a lot of it. stuff yeah, yeah, in yeah. product marketing as far as being in the game. So was that, I mean, when that when that opportunity at March Networks presented itself, was it pretty much a no-brainer? Like, of course I'm going to take this. Or was there hesitation? Or was there nerve? Because I feel like anytime I'm presented an opportunity of like, hey, you're doing well. We're yeah. going to present you with an opportunity to do something that you're really good at. I always hesitate a little bit because I'm always like, I don't know if I'm quite ready for that, you know? You know, someone comes at you with an opportunity like that. It seems very, very sexy. Yeah. Here's the kicker. Cognos was awesome. Yeah. Like, I mean, it was, it's, it's like the grass is always greener. The grass was never greener than it was at Cognos. Right, right, right. Uh, it was just an incredible place to work. Uh, incredible people. I learned so much from the people there. Those people claim they learned something from me. I'm like, no way, you know, that's impossible. Um, a very key mentor of mine, a guy named John Lawler, who was my boss there in investor relations. I learned everything about investor relations from that guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a, it was an easy but tough decision, right. if that makes any sense. Was it? I mean, was it tougher basically because you were leaving that versus you were taking on this new one? It's more like was the tougher part leaving Cognos or was the tougher part taking on a new it was job? Really, a combination. It's, right, it's right, a right. combination, and this comes back to the presentation stuff: the fear of the unknown. Yeah, yeah. Of I have it pretty good right now. Um, I've got a good career, making decent money. Why would I leave? Right. And, but then the the ambitious part of you says. Why on earth would you stay, right? Yeah. Constantly growing. Well, Got to be well, constantly head growing. Of, head of investor relations, right? Versus head of investor relations. Why would I like just you know slap yourself in the face and yeah. say, no, you <laughs> idiot, you go do this. This is a gift wrapped right in your lap. Uh, take it, right. do it. 
So I went and did it, learned a ton, had a blast doing it. Always knew I wanted to get into the consulting world. Uh, Why is that? Uh, just the idea of working with clients, convincing clients of ideas, spreading ideas with clients. Uh, I just didn't know when. Right. And like, had you had these thoughts at Cognos as well? That you, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, for sure. The, the, the idea of being your own boss, be it within a larger organization where you are in charge of your kind of daily schedule or um, being your, your own consulting company, both were very attractive to me. So uh, I was a client at Hill & Knowlton of, sorry, I was a client at March Networks of a company called Hill & Knowlton. Hill & Knowlton was a strategic communications consulting company, still okay. is today, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, worldwide. And they had approached me about, yeah, you know, you do this investor relations thing, seem to do a pretty good job of it. We kind of want to start consulting around that with clients. Do you want to come head it up, the, the investor relations? And again, you know, opportunities like that don't come every single day. So that was a bit tougher decision because it was, it was going into a different industry. Right. And it, it was a little bit more unknown. But I did it. I was like, this, this, I got to do this. This is awesome. When they approached you, was it, I mean, they asked, like, did they, was it pretty concrete what they wanted you to do? Was it, or was it a little bit like you come in and you figure out what we need to do? No, get this. They say they're interested, but, but, you know, then they didn't really know what they were interested in. Right, right, right. So I presented the idea of, well, I tell you what, why don't I come in and deliver a presentation to you? a presentation of what I think investor relations consulting should be in this country and what the value of it is and how much money we can make out of it and how much value we can bring. So uh, they said, that sounds like a great idea. So I went in and didn't really have an interview. I delivered a presentation. Yeah. And after the presentation, they went and had a little 30-second meeting and said, we think we want to do this. That's the start of my consulting career. Right. Did that for a couple of years. Uh, so what were you doing there, though, at Nolan? In, in Hill & Knowlton Investor yeah. Relations Consulting, working with publicly traded companies on having them better communicate with their shareholders. So was it kind of similar to kind of what you're doing today? Like, were you, co- were you coaching public companies to say, this is how you should be doing yes. your demos and stuff like that? To- it was coaching. It was more general consulting. Okay. Of some of it got very, very technical as, you know, here are the proper materials that you need to communicate with the investor base uh, and your analyst. Some of it was, uh, you know, Mr. CEO or Mrs. CEO, you, you really got to do a better job on that conference call. Think about doing this. Think about doing that. Right, right, right. So it was very communications oriented. As I was doing that job, you know, consulting with big firms like that is, is interesting. Uh, uh, a client outside of the investor relations space came to the organization and said, hey, you know, we need, we need some help on presentation coaching in general for a couple of key people. And the organization, Hill Norton, looked at me and said, hey, Anil, you do a pretty decent job of, of presenting. Uh, can you coach these people? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I did a bit of research, then actually did a lot of research, came up with a bit of a methodology, and started coaching some of these executives on presentations outside of the investor relations realm. So that's weird. So before this had happened, it, it, like formal presentation methodologies and process, like wasn't really, it was just you were kind of good at presenting. Yeah. And so this presented itself. And then as a result, you decided to do some research and kind of put something yeah. together. Wow, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how you bring that up. 
yeah, there was no standard methodology. And Casey, today, there is no standard methodology. Well, you know, you know, you know it's crazy, right? So when, when this whole LSPARC thing happened and we were starting to work with the LSPARC companies, uh, I, was, I was convinced I knew like some good like aspects. You of knew it all. Right? Yeah. I knew, I knew like pieces. I, I knew I didn't know everything and I knew I hadn't, I'd only received a little bit of formal training in this one workshop that we had yeah. at my company. But in, in fear of that, I was like, Elspark's asking me to work with like, you know, X number of companies to do this. I better do a little bit of research and yeah. reading. And so that's when I decided to finally read presentations Zen because I had flipped through presentations Zen yeah. multiple times. Yeah. And a lot of my slide design techniques come from just those like 10 or 15 pages where it's, it's all slides. It's a wonderful book. You know? And then I said, you know what? If these people are putting their trust in me, I better do a little bit of research. Yeah. So was it kind of like, so you were, at, you were given this job and at that point, again, you started to put together. A methodology. Right, right, And right. as I'm putting it together and then uh, another client comes along and another client comes along and they're getting a lot of value from it. They really like it. All, start, all still at the consultant all company. All still at the consulting company. Right, yeah. Then I thought, you know, I think I've got something here. And I don't think I want to do it with a larger consulting company. I think I want to do it on my own. Yeah. So that's where you take that leap of faith, uh, that leap of faith that many people listening to this are thinking, right? Like, wow, can I, quote unquote, leave my job and do this as a career? Can I do that? You've gone through it. I've gone through it. People listening to this are thinking about it. And you, I took that leap of faith of leaving the awesome, well-paying job with a big office and beautiful view at the window. And was there any complications around the fact that you had gotten this client base or training or whatever through that company? Like, well, it's not as though uh, when I left Hill and Knowlton, it's not as though I went and poached their clients. Okay, uh, that that you know, that's something I just wouldn't do ethically. Right, right, right. It was more. Um, I've got this. Uh, I know I could approach some non-clients who would be interested in this, and then it's up to me to to execute and deliver. How, how quick was it between your decision to leave and actually leaving? Or, and was that tough? Like it is, and I mean, this is this is a, a good conversation around that whole concept. A couple of things that I had going for me was a, I love, like capital L, the concept of selling. Right. So. Uh, a lot of consultants or would-be consultants are like, ah, I really like consulting. I hate selling. Uh, as long as I don't have to sell, I'm good. And I really like consulting, but I capital L love selling. Right, right. So I knew I had that going for me, the idea of convincing others of this really cool idea that I have. It was compelling to me. So getting clients early on, wasn't a huge issue. Right. I had a list of clients who I wanted to go after. Not all of them said yes, as is, it's the way that's the way it should be. Yeah. And then the ones who said yes were great, and and you know here we are ten years later, and I only wish I had done it sooner. And did you quit cold turkey? Or did you just leave the job, the consultant, and then say like you know like- I, I did. Um, I held on as an associate for a little while okay. because there were some investor relations clients there who wanted to continue to work with me and. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I liked the firm. I liked the people at the firm, Hill and & Knowlton, and I didn't want to leave them high and dry. So I stayed on, did a little bit of investor relations work as well as an associate, but all the presentation stuff was all on my own. Right, right, right. So that's crazy because, I, I mean, uh, uh, one of the things I, th- I thought, like, but, I mean, before you formally put together the methodology and doing your research and stuff like that, you must have had some either ideas that you had 
just naturally generated over time in the presentations that you're doing in terms of what makes a good presentation. Right? Sure. I, I had always liked presenting. I had always told that I was good at presenting yeah. when in group situations and we had to choose a presenter, people always like, no, Neil's going to present this. Right. So, um, I was passionate about it because I was good at it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th There's actually a, a really interesting article out there, um, and I can't remember the title of it, but it talks about passion. And it really made me think about passion with respect to, we always say to people today, do what you're passionate about. Yeah. Um, if you're not passionate about it, don't do it. Go find your passion. And the writer of this article was like, well, what, well how do you do that? Yeah. How do you go, where's the book on finding your passion? What do you, how do you do that? And then he turned everything on its ear and he really messed things up. And he says, what have I told you? You don't find your passion, passion finds you. Right. Right. We tend to be passionate about stuff that we're good at. Yeah. We tend to be passionate about stuff that we're good at. So if you're really, really bad at chess, like if you get blown out of the water every time you play chess, your the likelihood of you being passionate about chess is very slim. Yeah. If you're phenomenal at chess, if you're kicking everyone's ass at chess, all your friends, all your buddies, your parents, you're like, I, I like this. I'm passionate, quote unquote, about chess. It, it's interesting though, discussing what the word passion even means and like what you're passionate about, because I do think like it, it's natural for that to happen because you get this positive feedback loop, right? Like you do stuff and yeah. you're getting great feeling out of it because either you're getting a natural sense of accomplishment or people are complimenting you or whatever. I mean, just like this podcast, right? The more people like tell me about it, the yeah. more I want to book guests, the more I want to do it or whatever, yeah. right? It's interesting though when it comes to a point where the positive feedback loop is not enough. Like, like, like I mean, you, you, you probably classically hear a lot of people talk about you know, I'm good at it, but I don't actually enjoy doing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to, to see. So, I mean, I wonder like for you, where do you think, like, does your, does your like quote passion for pre presenting and, and doing a good job of presenting, did that come from a positive feedback loop as you were growing up? Like, where do you think, or did it stem from, like, I think me personally, if I'm to be a hundred percent honest about where I think I love, why I love presenting is I love attention, but I <laughs> love attention. I, I, you know, in high school I was in a band, you know, uh, you know, through university I was playing open mics, um, all these things. Yeah. So you know? let, let me flip this on you. Yeah. So I am the polar opposite of that. Right. I do not want the attention. Right. I do not want it. Uh, I am a card carrying introvert. And when I tell clients that they're like, no way, you're bullshitting us. I'm a card carrying introvert. Uh, so it wasn't an, an attention thing for me. Right. I think it's a combination of I was good at it. Wh where did it start? You know, if I have to look back, because I've been asked the question before, yeah, I'd say grade six. You know, we're going way back here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grade six, where they tell you you had to do a speech in front of the class, and I did a speech in front of the class, and it went over pretty well. And they're like, "Hey, you were the best one in the class. Okay, now you got to do it in front of the school." And like, oh shit, I don't want to do that. Okay, I guess I'll do it. And you go and do it in front of the school and everyone laughs and has a good time with it. And it was great. There's positive feedback loop number one. Yeah. And it just kind of grew from there. Right. Uh, into high school, into university, into uh, my first job, into my second job, into my third job. And then it comes a point where you're know, like, 
gee, now I've got this methodology around it. I think I want to do this. Yeah. I think I, well, I know I'm passionate about it. Fast forward, there's a combination of other things. I'm passionate about business. I'm passionate about um, consulting. I'm passionate about clients. I'm passionate about communications. I think communication really is the crux of the whole thing. I think bad communication is the the root of all evil in the world. Right. I think good communication is kind of the root of all success in the world. I know some really, really smart, incredible, borderline genius people who do a crappy job of communicating and their personal and professional lives suffer as a result. Right. I know some people who quite, yeah, that, not that bright, um, not overly special in any kind of way that sounds nasty to say but but it's true just kind of boring ordinary people master communicators amazing to see them fly flourish professionally and personally right yeah i mean it's an interesting point though uh, and it's and it's something that i've struggled with myself a little bit um which is i, I consider myself a, a decent communicator i wouldn't say i'm excellent but i'd say i'm i'm a decent communicator um do you think there is a slight danger in the sense that it's almost like the phrase of like the loudest people get heard, you mm-hmm. know, like the really good communicators, regardless of the substance behind the communication may get heard. And, 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 and I, again, I struggle with this myself because I feel like at times I'm, I'm a good communicator and good salesperson at the detriment of the actual thing that I'm doing. Like, for example, I might oversell something, mm. but because I'm a decent communicator, people will buy into it. And then I later realize, oh shoot, they shouldn't have bought into it. Mm. Like now we're in trouble, mm. right? Do you think there's a danger in that with, with effective communication? Like, is that, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I'll come back to something I say to clients all the time about presentations specifically is, you know, if I give you an opportunity to present in front of a group of people that you want to present in front of for 15 minutes, you are consumed with, okay, I got I to gotta get 15 minutes of really good content in. Uh, the reality is very few people in that audience will say, if you, if you came in at 10 minutes or 12 minutes of content, very, very few of those people will say, you know, that was an okay presentation by Casey. I, I just wish it was longer. Yeah. Very few people are going to say that. But we as communicators feel, I've been given 15 minutes. I'm going to jam pack that 15 minutes. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Content, content, content. I'm more about, um, what if I don't give them 15 minutes? What, what if I advise my client on giving them 12 or 9 or dare I say even 5 really good minutes, engaging minutes, and then seeing what they want to talk about next, like the art of shutting up mm-hmm. and listening as part of the communication process. You know, 60% of communication is listening. That's what the, the experts out there say. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. 60%. Yet we, if you look at the average corporate communications budget, how much money are they allocating to strategic listening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Approximately 0%, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. We got to get our word out. We got to get this press release out. We got to get this out up on the website. We got to create this YouTube video. We got to put that out on social media. Uh, get the message out, 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 out. Uh, very little focus on taking the word in. So I think strategic communications is that proper yin and yang of 
No, I want to present really good content. I want that content to be engaging. I was saying content is king. Engagement is the queen. And the queen tends to run the place, right? So um, without engagement, we could have the best content in the world, but it's no longer the best content in the world because it's not engaging. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of my long-winded way of, of putting it. I, communication is interesting. There's multiple aspects of communication. Here, here's one of my questions for you is I've noticed in written communication when I get an email from you, I've been, I've been perplexed by this for years now. <laughs> and uh, Actually, you know what? Why don't we do this? Why don't we hold that? We'll do some unpaid advertisements and okay. get to that question. Okay, let's do it. All right, we're here talking with Anil Delari. We'll be right back after some unpaid advertisements. All right, and now for a segment called Unpaid Advertisements. If you don't know what the deal is, go listen to past episodes and you'll know what the deal is. Okay, today we have a treat because our guest has brought his own unpaid oh, advertisements. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. Anil, take it away. Uh, thank you. Unpaid advertisement. I love this aspect of your podcast. I think it's a competitive differentiator. My unpaid ad today is um, through a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, uh, a coach, an incredible business person. His name is JP Michel, Jean-Philippe Michel. He has a great company, compelling company called SparkPath. Go to mysparkpath.com. What JP and SparkPath do is they take uh, kids, more mainly high school kids, and take their academic success and turn it into workplace success. He does this um, through a number of avenues, some coaching and training that he does, but he's also created and invented something he calls challenge cards. And challenge cards challenge students to pick challenges that they want to do and want to um, uh, kind of embark on and solve as part of their career. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, we have said, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? What title do you want? I want to be a manager of this, a director of this, a VP of this. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. It's less title oriented. And he says the work world of the future is more about solving problems. And what problems do you want to solve? What challenges and issues do you want to embark on? And so these challenge cards get a student thinking about that and get them thinking of, okay, given that, what educational path do I want to take? Too many kids these days, uh, I would say the majority of kids these days, and by kids I mean largely high school students, uh, say, well, I don't really want to do, I'll, I'll figure it out after I go to university. And what JP and, and SparkPath are doing is they're taking that thought process earlier on so that kids and parents are not spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases on an education. And then the kid saying, well, I did that for four years of university or I did that for eight years of university. I did that for 12 years (laughs) at university and it's not really what I want to do. It's not my quote unquote passion. So that's mysparkpath.com. Jean-Philippe Michel, he's incredible. It's incredible. Check it out. Great. JP Michel, sparkpath.com. All right, me and Anil have been talking about presentations and the 
Unpaid Advertisement Today is all about presentations, and in fact, we've already plugged this already. But if you want some great presentation advice, everything from practicing to the mindset to architecting your story to slide design, you definitely want to check out something called Presentation Zen by Gar Reynolds. He has given a couple of TED Talks. He's written a great book and supplemental books after that, and he has a blog covering a lot of these great principles. Um, I, again, have always been very passionate about presenting, um, but it was this book that kind of gave me a little bit of validation in what I was doing because I would read it and be like, yes, that's that's what I thought would make things good. I remember this book, um, when I used to work at uh, Harris Computer Systems, this book gave me basically, um, like, li- like, not liberty. It gave me the power to basically say, yeah, guys, our slides should be this powerful and simple. Just a picture with a word, nothing else. And they all bought into it because of this book. So check out presentationzen.com, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-A-T-I-O-N-Z-E-N.com. Also purchase the book. Anil, do you want to say anything about Presentation Zen? Gar Reynolds. I'm a Gar Reynolds disciple. I follow the guy like he's some kind of religious leader. Uh, Two of my favorite lines from Gar Reynolds ever, I've tweeted them, retweeted them many times. First of all, when the the advent of Prezi came along, for those of you who are not aware of Prezi, even though I know everyone's aware of Prezi, it's just a really neat, newer, sexier uh, software uh, around presentations. But we always tell clients, it's not about the presentation software, it's about you. They asked for you to show up on Tuesday afternoon, 2.30, meeting room A, to present the presentation, not the presentation software to show up. So um, he has this great line. He says, if we always used to say death by PowerPoint, do we now say vertigo by Prezi? And if you don't know what that means, that's, you know, when you're watching Prezi, sometimes it's this zoom in, zoom out technology. There's a lot of movement. And people, I've heard this a number of times, people literally sometimes feel nauseous when watching a Prezi presentation because there's there's too much zooming in and out going on. The other one he says is uh, around presentation notes, so cue cards or sheets of paper that a presenter may have. I love his line there. He says, yes, use that. Use those cue cards. You Have those cue cards, even if you don't use them as a, if you're just there as a security blanket, use them. And just don't put the what the content on those cue cards. Just don't put them up on the screen. Uh, they're your notes. Your audience isn't interested in reading your notes. If they just wanted to read your notes, they would have just asked you to email them your notes. They're there to see you. So use cue cards for you, but don't kind of expose your notes via your slide to your audience. Awesome. Check it out. Presentationzen.com. And we are back talking with Anil Delari. Now, right before the break, Anil is going to present me with a question. Okay. So I've received dozens and dozens of emails from you, written communication. Right. At the bottom of these emails, you sign your email, C. Lee 23. I'll say that again. This is your big question. C. Lee. So Casey's first name starts with C. Here's the C. His last name is Lee. L-I. Yes. C-L-I-23. What the heck is 23? Right. Uh, why do you sign your emails C-Lee-23? All right. Do you, want the, do you want the long story? No. Short. Okay. So basically, the C-Lee comes from, yeah, you're right, Casey Lee. 
I, I was like, my initials are CJL actually. Okay. Uh, Casey Jeremy, actually Gafai Lee is my, my Chinese name in the middle there. Um, my friend growing up, his name was Brian Lee and he always used to sign his name Blee, like B-L-I. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna start signing my name C-L-I because I, like, I would idolize a lot of people growing up. And then the 23 came in because in grade eight, we had an art class. Uh, it was like this extracurricular art class. And the person said, you should design your signature. You should, it shouldn't just be like your name. You can, like I signed, like she signed her signature with a rose at the end and stuff like that. You should really design it. So what I came up with the signature is I incorporated the number 23. And in fact, if you ever see me sign a contract or my credit card or anything, the 23 is in there as well. Hmm. It's pretty simple to be honest. It's 23rd of July is when I was born. Oh, neat. That's what it is. Yeah. I was hoping for a sexier story. You know what's funny too? Because when I started <laughs> my business and started sending out business emails, I started saying like, oh, I cannot sign my emails like this because it's a business corporate setting. I got to sign it Casey Lee, right? And I'm like, no, you know what? No, why not? I'm going like, to keep it friendly, you know, express myself or whatever. And now, yeah, it's always Casey Lee 23. Uh, there's a, a female professional golfer. I forget her first name, but her last name is Lee. And she started off on the Korean uh, LPGA uh, tour, and, and there are a lot of Lees. So uh, she signs her name and is known as whatever her first name is, I can't remember, Lee Six. Oh. She was the sixth Lee on the Korean tour. <laughs> okay. She's now a professional on like the worldwide, the, the yeah, big yeah, tour yeah, yeah, in yeah. North America. And I notice her name on the leaderboards, and I'm like, is that a six? <laughs> At the end of her name, what what is with that? And Google it, and sure enough, that's she funny. Wants to be referred to as Lee Six. Yeah, no, it's just uh, just my birthday. So I, I thought this question was going to be about how I re, how I write my emails or how I communicate in my emails. No, no, so. no. It's amazing what goes through people's heads, right? Yeah, uh, it's amazing. Uh, I, I think about this with presentation clients, where uh, you know we will talk about high level strategy uh, with presentations. And then I'll get the question. Okay, any questions? Any high levels? Uh, yeah, Neil, I got a question. Um, what font should I use yeah. in my breath? I'm like, oh, shit. Um, okay. Uh, fonts. That's the high level strategic question <laughs> yeah, you've yeah. got for me. This is what's on people's minds when it comes to communications, when it comes to presentations. Right, right. So actually, um, I actually have a, have a question here for you that I, I really want your opinion on because you have experience now, 10 years of experience coaching and training people in uh, the art of communication and how to effectively communicate. And, um, you know, my, obviously my, my narrow view is a little bit more on the specifically like presentation side, not necessarily how you enter a room and how you, mm -hmm. you know, perform sales calls and stuff like that. And I, I would like to believe in the best in people and maybe you can validate this a little bit, but like, so when I, when I help people with presentations, I would say the general, um, the general reaction I get is that it's just something they didn't know. It, it's not because mm -hmm. they believe in fundamentally mm -hmm. putting a bunch of stuff on their slides. And it's not that they believe that they should be longer presentations. Mm -hmm. It's just they didn't know, right? Yeah. And, and I think it's easy for me to sit back and say like, oh, like people are doing things wrong. But Every time I talk to someone and say, oh, you know what, you should put less on your slide or, or you should architect a story before you get to PowerPoint and all this stuff, they seem to react very positively. And, and, and it's just like, it's not, it's not that they're thinking wrong. It's just the they absence of, yeah, exactly. And do you see the same thing? Like, do you get any pushback or is it generally that, that reaction that you get? It's very much that. The issue at the executive level is 
it is difficult for executives, especially if they're in a group setting, less so if they're one-on-one, difficult for them to admit they don't know. If you're a 25-year executive with an organization, uh, you think you're the cat's ass, you think you know it all, very difficult for you to admit, you know what, I just didn't know that. I, I, counter is more true. Hey, Neil, I've been doing this for 25 years. I don't really need your coaching, but the CEO says, you know, each one of us need to work on this. So, you know, maybe we could just go to coffee and, and talk about business. Right. Uh, I'm like, no, let's let's work on this. And just because you've been doing something for 25 years doesn't necessarily mean you've been doing it well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what have I told you? Presentations over the last 25 years have changed dramatically uh, in uh, multiple different ways. So you may have been really, you may have been perfect 23 years ago. Doesn't mean you're perfect today. Uh, Doesn't mean I'm better than you. I'm your coach. I'm looking to take you to another level. Right. And do they respond generally like, like, like in your job? Cause I, I, I talk about how this is like a really tough battle and I think it's a tough battle more because of the size of the problem. Like, like, like it's, it's, it's like, you know, proliferated through the entire corporate business world. But when you're, when you're actually sitting down with somebody one-on-one and coaching them, um, are they generally very receptive to what you're telling them? And it's just a fact that they, I, no one ever told me that. And, and this is where the, the art of coaching comes in is it completely depends on the individual. Right, right, right. Uh, there are no two people the exact same, right? We are not drones yet. So, so um, some are very coachable and, and open to it and uh, open to vulnerability and saying, you know what, yeah, that's true and I didn't know it. Others are more attached to what they've been doing and want to justify what they've been doing. It's up to me, the coach, to work with both or all kinds of clients in uh, convincing them, working with them. It's not about me, the coach. It's about them. It's about taking them to another level. Right. But I may have massive ambitions for a client uh, that, you know, you're going to present in this way and not only are you going to present in this way, it's going to be so effective, you will be the presumptive next CEO of the organization. That may be my goal for them, but that may not be their goal for them. Yeah, yeah. Right? I may see that in them and I may even tell them, hey, I think with the way that you're presenting and communicating, you've got this executive presence now, you could get the CEO job next. Yeah. That's not up to me. That's up to them. You know, it's interesting. Like that's that that directly leads into my my next question, which is about like how to because I think I think when you get into um, you know a, a profession or an expertise or a like let, let's say like we take Biteside for example, video production, right? Um, I think there is a obviously a goal that you might have in mind for your client, right? Sure. So like some a, a client comes to us and we're like they're like we want to make the best video or whatever, and we say okay, if you really want to make the best video. It's going to take six months. It's going to take $50,000. It's going to da 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 right? And then they're like, oh, okay, well, the reality is yeah. we, we don't have that money. We don't have that time, yeah. whatever, right? So I'm wondering when you get that. So let's say you go in and you're, you're consulting with somebody and say, okay, guys, if you really want to up your presentation game, mm-hmm. you're going to have to spend you know, uh, two hours a day practicing. You're going to have to construct this da 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 right? Like the, the top of the line stuff. And then they come back to you and they're like, and you know, I, I definitely believe in all that, but the reality is I have to manage like 50 employees. Mm-hmm. I have to do this, that. Where, how do you balance that out? And maybe that leads me to what are like, are there things that you start off with saying, okay, I understand you can't do all of that, 
just start with this or this or this. Like, where do you, how do you reconcile that? And how do you, what do you decide to focus on? And I obviously know client to client is different, but. Client to client is different and it's very much, uh, up to them. I, I like calling uh, or uh, discussing with clients um, the return on investment with the time they spend on their presentations. So let, let me push this to you. If I told you tomorrow uh, there's a prospect who would offer upwards of a million dollars in revenue for you and your company, grandiose video production, big, big plans, and you your eyes go wide open and you're like, yeah, I, I want that. I'm like, okay, so let me ask you, a pitch is part of the process here. They need they need to hear you present and present your ideas and, and what your plan is going forward for that project. Um, how much time would you spend structuring that presentation? How much time would you spend working on your slides? How much time would you spend on working on your physical delivery? How much time would you spend on, once all the content is nailed, actually practicing the presentation. My guess is you would say something like all the time necessary. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So I was, okay, you know, so like what, 40 hours, an entire week just dedicated to practicing the presentation. You're like, yeah, for sure. No problem. Great. You just did a a return on investment analysis. You said, no, it is worth me and my team spending 40 hours just on practicing, probably a whole other week working on organization slides, physical delivery. So maybe a full two weeks, maybe even a month dedicated to this. You did your return on investment. I ask each individual client to do the same thing. Right. What's on the line? Yeah. So when a client says, well... I'm presenting to 500 people at a conference. Within that group, there's likely going to be 10 prospects who we really want as clients. I'm like, great. So, how much would the average? How much? What's the average deal within your organization? Average deal is $50,000. Okay, so 10 clients, $50,000 a piece. Potentially half a million dollars on the line with this presentation. And you're, you're telling me you're having trouble finding 15 minutes to practice that well yeah yeah, i'm busy i gotta respond to emails okay let's do an roi on those emails let's do an roi on you surfing facebook let's do an roi on you buying shoes uh at lunchtime uh let's do an roi of the average executive spending 23 hours in meetings um what's the roi on all that stuff is it half a million dollars plus my guess is not so we put it into perspective from the then it's up to them, right? Do they? I'm, I mean, do I'm, they actually respond to that stuff? Because I feel like I feel like it sounds good, but like I feel like it's a hard shift for, for people to make, right? Very. So this is where, for many clients, we actually go through the preparation process with them, right? Where we say, "No, I'm actually going to get into a room with you, and that 20 minute presentation, I'm going to hold them accountable. I'm right? going to have you do it three times." Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then we watch and we note and we let them note the improvement. Have you ever run into a case where you've had to scale them back? Where you're like, look, your ROI on this is pretty small. Maybe you shouldn't like, like, cause I, I, I've run into that Never. where clients. Very rarely. Yeah, yeah. Very, very rarely. Yeah. Very rarely. Cause I feel like I've run into clients where they're like, uh, um, well, we, we've had a mutual client that's come to me and they're like, we want this, we want this, we want this. I'm like, Maybe hold on, like mm-hmm. like yeah. you can probably execute a lot of what you're talking about without mm-hmm. our help. Yeah, you know, and kind of like 
kind of talk them down a little bit. And I think it's, it's, it's like in everybody's best interest if there is that, that level, right? But it's, it's tough, right? It's tough when your, your craft, you want everybody to spend all the time on your craft, right? Yeah, and I'm very realistic too. Uh, you know, again, this is not people's top thing to do, jump out of bed Monday morning and go present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that natural state of, I don't want to spend all my time on this. So I would say I have a bit of an advantage there. Rarely do they go over the top and go, hey, gee, I just spent, you know, all day practicing for this 10-minute presentation and there really wasn't very much on the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very rarely is that the case. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'll come back to a question you had earlier. It's an excellent question is, um, how did we get to this state where presentations suck yeah, and yeah. everyone hates doing it and, and no one's good at it or very few are good at it and those who are good at it kind of fell into it accidentally like I did. Why, why is that? I like, blaming's a strong word, but I like blaming education. So if you go back to, and I'm going to point um, to person listening to this podcast, I want the person listening to the podcast to think back to uh, kindergarten. I want them to think back to uh, elementary school, high school, university or college, if you went, uh, and post-grad, if you went. Even if you have your PhD, think of PhD school. Uh, throughout all those education systems, as a student, you have been asked to do four things in classrooms. You are asked to read, write, speak, and listen. That's what students do. They go to class every day, they read, write, speak, and listen. Our education systems, regardless of where we are, elementary school, high school, university, post-grad, we only really teach and measure two of those, reading and writing. Read the textbook, write the midterm. Read my notes up on the screen, write the final. Here's your mark, right? In elementary school, high school, maybe even elements of university, the teacher says, no, okay, hey, listen, go up there and present. Very rarely does a student sit there and put up their hand and say, how do I do that? How do I do that? Yeah, that's no, true. No, 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 just go up and present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but like, what's, what's the process? Like, you told me how to write cursive or you told me how to add. You told me how to, you gave me uh, policies, procedures. You gave me ideas on how to do that effectively, but you didn't tell me how to speak it around. I'm scared to death. Is that a normal feeling? Is that an okay feeling? I feel like throwing up up here in front of my classmates. I hate presenting now. Well, you never got taught how to do it. That's true. Same thing with listening, right? What's the teacher say in grade school? Hey, sit there and listen, just listen. No kid puts up their hand and says, how do I do that? What, what have I told you? There's a process to listening, yeah. right? There's a structure to listening. There, it's the art of listening. Yeah. It's hard. It's something you need to practice. Yeah. We don't teach it. We don't put it on a on a report card. I've uh, I followed you on LinkedIn, um, you know, in your various posts, and I noticed you do go into classrooms. You teach young kids elementary school. Is is that where that comes from? Yeah, it's not where it comes from. It's you know, I have kids, so it's it's really. Um, uh, I call a necessity yeah. <laughs> uh, in the sense that um, I tend to have good relationships with the teachers of my sure, kids sure, and, sure. and they tend to find out what I do and they're like, hey, could you come in and do something with it? I'm like, 
yes. Uh, it's something I like to do once a year yeah. uh, to go into usually a grid six classroom and talk to them about how to present. How does that go? What's that feeling? What's that experience like? And, and, and maybe con- contrasting it to your day-to-day work. Uh, amazingly receptive kids. I'm uh, always flabbergasted by how intelligent and thought-provoking their questions are. Uh, I love it. I love how they are. I mean, these are kids, they go to school every day. They are in learning mode. Yeah, yeah. When I talk to uh, my average CEO client, they're a CEO every day. They're not necessarily in learning mode. Yeah. So it's a bit of a, uh, a better audience right. in grade six, believe it or not. Uh, very interesting and I'm just glad I got to them in the hopes that, and I say this to them, I'm, I'm like, I'm hoping that you never look at another presentation in the same way ever again for the rest of your life. Yeah. I hope that you take this, what you learned here in grade six, and apply it to when you go to middle school, apply it when you go to high school, apply it when you go to university, apply it when you go to whatever you do in your career. And when you're 60 years old and you're wrapping up your career, you're remembering this moment. Yeah, in it's, grade a, it's, six. it's an amazing feeling, right? Like, I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't interact I don't teach kids at grade six, but I, I hit a, uh, I have a first year um, university class and it's about like 200 students. And it's, it's really like that part is the highlight for me when I get to my lecture about present presenting. And I'm like, this is my chance to like affect 200 people to say, when you go to the work world, start, start spreading this message and start spreading this kind of tone of how to, how to present. Right. Yeah. So it's really, it's really a definitely powerful thing. Uh, listen, Neil, we're kind of coming to a close here, but I know, did you have anything more that you, I mean, I know you had prepared potentially some questions and notes and stuff. I didn't want to close off the podcast before you got your chance to, to say anything that you wanted to say. That- well, let's, let's do a, a little bit of rapid fire. Cause we learn a lot about yeah. you through these podcasts yeah, yeah, yeah. too. I've learned that, you know, you're not, um, you're not good with unpredictability. You're not necessarily a data-oriented guy. Sure, sure. Uh, so this this is this is Anil talks to people. So Anil talks <laughs> to people. Uh, Casey, rapid fire. Your favorite music video ever of all time that you would see on YouTube. As you think about it, and since we don't have dead space, let me <laughs> let me uh, tell you mine, uh, and I encourage people to check it out. I lived. I lived by One Republic. Check out the video; it's one of my favorites of all time. Really good song too. Awesome song. Um, great band. Uh, the video is quite compelling. Growing up, um, I think I, I always loved uh, November Rain, Guns N' Roses, yes. um, because the video. And I don't know if they intended it this way, but it, it like so. For those who don't know, do you do you remember the video? <laughs> I do. So it was like the guy's wedding day, yeah. but then it starts raining and then people are trampled and I think the bride dies. Yeah, happens and, all the time. And I think it was like this one, <laughs> one of these things of like, wow, it's the guy's happiest day and saddest day in the same day. Yeah. You know, um, I would say the intellectual side of me, um, do you know Just by Radiohead? I've heard this. I haven't seen the video. You should definitely watch the video. It, it's definitely one of these... I'm not even going to say anything. For those listening out there, just. watch uh, the video Just by Radiohead. Uh, it's an amazing video. They're, I mean, Radiohead's videos are so good in general. They're like these interesting mystery videos. Uh, and Just is like really, really awesome. Okay, cool. Another rapid fire one. I know you're a big Conan O'Brien podcast <laughs> fan. Yeah. Kind of the, the genesis of this whole podcast. Give me one. I mean, we're in podcasts or, or we're at peak podcast here. What's another podcast that you listen to on a regular basis that you really enjoy? 
Um, if there is one. Yeah, there was one. I, I kind of fell off, uh, but um, Masters of Scale. Nice. Uh, do you know it? It's a I've link, heard of it. Yeah, LinkedIn founder or... Yeah, LinkedIn Founders podcast. Uh, I will say the earlier episodes were better. I fell off for a reason. It just it seemed like a lot of the same stuff. Is that Reed Hoffman? Yes, exactly. Yeah, his podcast, yeah. And then the re- revisionist history, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, yeah, at yeah, some yeah. point was pretty good too. So. Yeah, that's cool. The, my favorite, um, I haven't listened to a lot of uh, revisionist history ones, but uh, I loved the... Um, uh, Wilt Chamberlain one oh, on Wilt Chamberlain's uh, the day that he scored a hundred points in a game. He's the only NBA player ever in the history of the game to score a hundred points during an NBA game. Wow! Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that as a big man center, uh, like most big men center, he was not good at free throws. Okay, but he shot. 28 for 32 from the free throw line that day. And what a lot of people don't realize is he shot his free throws underhand. Oh, I think I did hear this. Underhand. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's yeah, this yeah. whole podcast about no one shoots their free throws underhand, but they really should shoot their free throws underhand because statistically and kind of formation wise, it's actually better form. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, well, fascinating for me. Uh, two other podcasts that I love. Um, I love uh, small case L. Uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. I know yes. it's a very, very popular one. I just love his style. I love. I find uh, it's hit or miss. You know? Yeah, it's hit or miss. I love the wide ranging conversation. Yeah. It's, it's a little long. I tend to listen to, to uh, snippets of it. Yeah. He, he, he really surprises me, to be honest, because I, I, have, I had a very preconceived notion of who Joe Rogan was. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the more I listen to his podcast, he's not that way. You know? No, he's, yeah. a, he's a pretty uh, deep guy. Yeah, he's exactly. a bright yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I really like, I also like the, I also watch them on YouTube where I don't just listen to the audio yeah, 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 and yeah, watch yeah. it. I find that's compelling. That's how I got into it, actually. Yeah. It was his clips, yeah. The other one is uh, a Canadian one based out of Montreal, Six Pixels of Separation by a guy named Jewel, uh, Mitch Jewel. He's got two first names. Uh, very good business podcast. Uh he talks uh, about a lot of things business. Six pixels of separation. Cool, cool. I think that's all I've got as far as questions from you. All right. Actually, one more question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned that 24 episodes for the first season. Yeah, it's a moving, uh, t- it's a moving target. But you are C. Lee 23. <laughs> why, why would it not be 23? It's a, good, it's a good question. It's a good question. I think it's the round numberness of it. It's like, uh, you know, Conan ended on 36. I felt like for some reason 12 fits into calendars, you know, like 12 months. So, you know, 12, 24 it just seemed like the natural, natural number. It is a moving target. I, I am, it is getting complicated. I was just talking about this before you came in, actually, that th- there are people who are contact. Well, there is a person who contacted me about interviewing them and their schedule in terms of when I would interview them would not line up with 24. And they're also uh, I, uh, somebody that I interviewed who would probably want the episode out in a timely fashion, so I couldn't just save it for yeah. season two. So there's a, a little bit of and, and I'm curious, actually, to the listeners out there, if that even matters. Because I think, obviously, there is value in consistency and releasing on a regular basis and deciding you know, structurally, oh, this is season one, this is season two, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I'm curious to the listeners out there if that even really matters if I skip a week or I skip a couple weeks and then there's one random episode in the middle. I don't know. I have no idea. I would love to hear from you guys. But anyways, 23 just doesn't sound as round and nice, you know? Well, listen, Casey, it has been a pleasure 
doing business with you. It has been a pleasure being with you on your podcast. I continue to be a fan. Look forward to listening to many more going forward and uh, would come back anytime. Yeah, I definitely appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, Anil. You know, I've been a fan of what you are doing. And, and you know, I, I don't know if you ever heard of an organization called Demo to Win or Global to Win. Um, so they were the only coaching I ever got from a, from a hmm. presentation standpoint. And um, they came in to do a, a two, three-day workshop with us. And I went into that thinking, you know what, I'm really good at presenting. They're not going to teach me anything. You know, <laughs> I, I know what I'm doing. And everything they said like completely like was not not in contract not in conflict with what I believed in, but just added and supplemented what yeah. I was already doing. So I feel like there are very I, I genuinely believe there are very few people that I come across who get it. Uh, and you're one of those people. And I feel like uh, it's awesome that you've chosen a profession profession that is spreading that because I think the thing that I think is really annoying and tragic is the vicious cycle where it's like you have somebody who thinks they know what uh, you have somebody, you know, an entry level employee comes in and they have great presentation skills, but because the higher ups are expecting this kind of old school, you know, unorchestrated, unpracticed style of presentation, it just starts to affect them. And I think that that is the tragedy in the vicious cycle of, of bad presentations, right? So very much respect the the work that you're doing. And I, I hope you have continued success. I know you had, again, a lot of big clients uh, and I just hope that continues. So uh, thanks so much for speaking with me and coming with me. And again, this is the most casual I've ever seen you. So it's great to see this side of Anil. Uh, is there anything else you, that you want to say before I close things off? That's it, man. Just uh, I would encourage uh, listeners to continue listening to uh, this podcast and others and share your comments. Appreciate the support. All right. Questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at casey.lee at gmail.com or send me a tweet at caseylee23. There's that 23 again. Uh, visit our website at www.caseylee.com slash podcast. Casey Talks to People is currently hosted on Anchor FM and distributed to all your favorite platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and leave reviews if you can. They definitely help. And you can even leave a voice message if you go to our website. Don't forget to check out Sleeping at the Wheel by Matchbox 20. It's a great track. Uh, but as for now, that's it for episode 18 on August 14th, 2019. Casey talks to Neil Delari. We hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you guys in the next one. <laughs> <laughs>